We're back. I'm Mike Gillis. And I'm Casey Doran. And this is another exciting episode of Radio vs. the Martians. And I am really excited about today's panel. Yes, absolutely. I'm honored to be the host of this month's panel. And the topic is the legendary Japanese animator Hayao Miyazaki. And if after hearing this panel you want to know more about Hayao Miyazaki, we'd like to recommend a couple things to help you get started. My first suggestion would be the making of documentary on the Princess Mononoke DVD. It's a behind-the-scenes look at Studio Ghibli's work at putting together their seminal 1996 animated feature. And if you wanted to dive in a little deeper, you could try and find a copy of a 1958 animated movie entitled Hakujaden, or in English, The Tale of the White Serpent. It was Japan's first animated feature and Miyazaki's inspiration for wanting to become an animator. But getting into the works of Hayao Miyazaki himself, I'd like to recommend the 1992 film Porco Rosso. This is a movie that we do talk a bit about on the panel, but not to the level for which it deserves. This is an amazing pulp adventure film starring a pilot in 1920s Italy who happens to be a pig. It's a rollicking fucking amazing adventure with air pirates and Brad Garrett. So (laughs) I would highly recommend checking this out. It's In my mind, I can't recommend it enough. And moving on, I want to say that we love our audience. The spectrum of responses that we've had to our website-only Radio vs. the Mailbag feature have been incredible, and I want to keep this going. I invite you to go on to RadioVsTheMartians.com and respond to this month's mailbag question, which is, Mike? What I think is potentially volatile and controversial in the world of fandom, and that is the question of genre. So we asked our listeners... Are the genres of science fiction and fantasy truly opposites in meaningful thematic ways, or are the differences merely cosmetic? We want to know, and we've gotten some great answers so far, and we want you to join that conversation. And you know what? Our old questions are up there as well. So if you want to get involved, and even our older ones, talking about whether you need to pull over for the Ghostbusters or not, (laughs) or a number of other questions, please go to RadioVersusTheMartians.com. And if you like what we do, support us. Rate us and review us on iTunes and Stitcher. We love it. It helps our show get more visibility, and it lets us know you're listening. And with that out of the way, we will catch you guys on the other side. In many ways... Japanese animation is as enigmatic to the American audience as the Japanese people. Alike, but different. Rooted in commonality, but separated by centuries of cultural isolation. Anime, as it is referred to in pop culture parlance, has only in the last 20-odd years gained recognition as a unique genre of film animation. Its 2D animation, chock-full of big-eyed, eccentric characters, drab futurescapes, giant robots, and impossibly proportioned females, As diverse and as well-developed as the genre is, one man's work has risen to represent the entire industry, Hayao Miyazaki. The first Japanese anime I saw, if you don't count the Transformers movie, would have been Akira. It must have been my early teens and I was transfixed by the astoundingly detailed artwork, graceful motion of the characters and the dark, brutal setting. And a short time later, when the local video rental store went out of business, my older brother purchased an enormous cache of well-used VHS tapes. 
One of those was an animated movie called Warriors of the Wind. It was the story of a young girl who rides a graceful glider through a post-apocalyptic world inhabited by toxic jungles, bucolic villages, and massive airships. Many years later, I learned that that film was actually Nausicaa of the Valley of the Wind. Roger Corman's New World Pictures had bought the distribution rights to Nausicaa and, fearing some of the film's slow and more deliberate storytelling, heavily edited the film and commissioned a wildly misleading cover image. Little did I know that I had stumbled upon one of the greatest works of Japan's legendary animator Hayao Miyazaki. Miyazaki is a veteran writer and director of animated movies and co-founder of Studio Ghibli, Japan's preeminent animation studio. Known for films such as Spirited Away, Princess Mononoke, My Neighbor Totoro, Howl's Moving Castle, and a bevy of others, his filmography spans a half a century. Beginning as a young man drawing manga, Japanese comics, during college, he started working on animated television shows for Toei Animation, and worked his way up to directing his own TV series, Future Boy Conan, in the late 70s, and then founded Studio Ghibli in 1985. Miyazaki's films have won international critical acclaim, record box office sales, and legions of devoted fans. Signing a distribution deal with Disney in 1996 ensured Miyazaki's entire catalog would no longer be restricted to the Japanese market. And while Miyazaki's films are, like most other feature films, a collaborative effort, nonetheless his films possess a style that are uniquely recognizable as his own. Sprawling fantasy worlds, abundant with flora and fauna, airplanes and machinery, the struggle between man and nature, and the indomitable spirit of a precocious child. These themes tend to pervade all of Miyazaki's works, but after 30 years, they never feel derivative or stale. Each Miyazaki film is suffused with vibrant imagination and animated with as little digital technology as possible. Miyazaki himself describes them as lovingly handcrafted. But given the precarious worlds that he creates, I believe that some of our attraction to these films is that they are fading from our world, much like the man himself, as Hayao Miyazaki announced that he was retiring from directing in September of last year. And this era, the era of Miyazaki, is the topic for this month's panel episode of Radio vs. the Martians. Joining us for our panel today is our very special guest, storyboard artist and director for, among other things, Warner Brothers DC, Avatar The Last Airbender, and The Legend of Korra. Welcome, Lauren Montgomery. Thank you very much for having me. Next up, a returning panelist, aspiring comedian, screenwriter, and fan fiction aficionado, Rosalind Townsend. Hi, thanks for having me back. Last but certainly not least, Kaneda to my Akira, Cat bus to my Totoro, Mike Gillis. How are you doing? <laughs> Good to be here. All right. So, okay, Lauren, let me start with you. When did you first discover Miyazaki, and what impression did it leave on you as an animator? I think my first encounter with Miyazaki was sometime in college. We went to see Princess Mononoke. Were you there, Casey? I'm pretty sure that was with me. Okay. Yes. <laughs> so I know a group of us went, and we saw Princess Mononoke at that little theater in Santa Monica kind of near Third Street, mm -hmm. and I really had not had any experience with Miyazaki up until that point, and I had limited experience with anime, because you know, this was a time before the internet was huge, and before anime was on, like, every shelf in Best Buy. You know, if you wanted anime, you had to go to Suncoast, and you had to pay through the nose to get it. Mm -hmm. So it was, it was a little harder to find, but we saw it, and it was crazy because the animation itself was so beautiful, but because I was in, like, such a I guess, American storytelling state of mind, like, it kind of confused me. I didn't fully understand it when I first saw it. Hmm. I was like, I don't know if I get the story. There's a big spirit guy, and <laughs> he kind of, like, drips goo on people, and there's, like, these animals, <laughs> and they talk, but their mouths don't really move. It was crazy, but it took me a little while to really understand and appreciate Miyazaki for what he is. 
just in that. I was a kid who I knew Disney and just American animation at that point. So it was an experience for sure. Rosalind, I'll move to you next. As someone who I know has lived in Japan, I'm sure you've been aware of Miyazaki for probably longer than we have. Uh, How did you first come to discover him? It was kind of in an odd and roundabout way because I was living in Japan at the time. I had only knew about the name and had known him kind of peripherally as the guy that did those movies. Mm -hmm. I had never actually seen anything that he'd done. I was 16 and 17 while I was in Japan. I was there for a year. And anime wasn't as big in the States as it is now, obviously, but I knew about like Dragon Ball Z and Sailor Moon. And like I thought of anime and it's sad to say, but from my limited exposure to it, Japanese storytelling in general, Hmm. because it's just what I didn't know about at the time, as very genre specific, very episodic and very formulaic. The first Miyazaki film I saw was Princess Mononoke, and it was airing as a repeat or like just like a random TV movie and on a Japanese television channel. Hmm. And I was on winter break, which was like a week long. I was miserable. My host family had fled to Hawaii and I was stuck with like a <laughs> like fake temporary host family that didn't really want me there. They were oh. just like chill and watch television. Wow, it really takes a lot to be an unwelcome guest in a Japanese household. They love guests. They're so respectful. (laughs) To be fair, I was a 16-year-old girl. Uh, I probably wasn't the best house guest. Uh. But I was sitting there watching it, and the thing that really stuck with me, with Mononoke in particular, and as for the podcast, I had to go back and watch a lot of stuff, Mm -hmm. rewatch things. It was animation and visual storytelling and uniquely Japanese storytelling that made me uncomfortable but was still thought-provoking and got me to pay attention because hmm. it was oh look a giant boar with weird demonic blubbly things coming out of his head <laughs> i should probably be paying attention to this and like i didn't understand quite all of what was going on because of the language barrier but even months and months after i saw it and when i came back to the states and saw it dubbed in english the image stuck with me enough to go i need to figure out what's going on with that nice and it was cool that it planted something even just a vague odd memory in my head of it that i had to go back and see it again so so much later Right. And yeah, it stuck with me in that respect, I think. Hmm. Mike, same question. Where do you think you first saw Miyazaki? Well, I am not somebody who is a fan of Japanese animation. I'm not somebody who has a lot of experience with it. Hmm. I have friends that are really into it, but it always seemed sort of like it took place in a different Venn diagram from the stuff that I was looking at. Sure. I didn't have a lot of experience with manga or Japanese culture or Japanese animation. I just knew that it usually meant guys with spiky hair and big eyes (laughs) and giant swords that were the size of like the oar on a boat, (laughs) duking it out and yelling these long monologues at each other. So Get angry and go all blonde. Exactly. (laughs) I mean, it was weird. And I guess you could say the limit of what I consumed from Japan was being produced by Nintendo. So some of it was kind of familiar because I saw some of the images in Final Fantasy games that I played, but I didn't have a lot of experience. So when a friend asked me to go along with him to see Spirited Away in the theater mm-hmm. back in, I believe, 2002, I went along just, hey, I get to hang out with my friends. And it really blew me away and it made me seek out his work. And one thing you mentioned, Rosalind, that I think is really indicative of Miyazaki himself is that he creates images that stick with you years after you see the movie. Some of his movies I've only seen once, and I can remember so clearly the cat bus from My Neighbor Totoro. I can remember so clearly, even though I didn't get a chance to rewatch it to prepare for this panel, the nature god deer creature getting shot in the side of the head in Princess Mononoke. I remember so clearly these images, and they don't go away, and... There is something about it that sticks with you and go, what was that? I want to mm-hmm. know. Mm-hmm. Because it's so unlike 
anything you're seeing in American animation, certainly, but even other Japanese animation, there are things that you see that are so distinctly him. He creates these worlds that are so organic and living, and you can tell that these are sorts of places that stories happen in. Even if it's something that's very grounded, it's amazing how deeply ingrained in your psyche these very basic images come. Like the characters in the bathhouse in Spirited Away with the masks on and the way that the nature god who's unleashed from the deer body is just sort of drooping down on the forest. I mean, this stuff is iconic. In a 1978 interview, Miyazaki talked about what he called yearning for a lost world, which is a theme I think that you replayed endlessly throughout Miyazaki's works. He goes on to say in this interview, it's the sense that although you may be currently living in a world of constraints, if you are free from those constraints, you will be able to do all sorts of things. The word nostalgia comes to mind. Adults fondly recalling something from their childhood often speak of nostalgia, but even three, four, and five-year-olds feel a similar sentiment. And I think, for me, this is a part of this grand design where he posits not only a setting, but also a set of feelings that pervade a world. And for me, I mean, I think that puts him as a world builder on the level of like a Tolkien or a Roddenberry or a Lucas because of the consistency of world he's able to create. But I wonder... A lot of this relies on sentimentality as the feeling that it's trying to evoke in you. And after having seen now many Miyazaki movies, do you think it's, are these overly sentimental movies? I don't think so. I think if you look at Nausicaa of the Valley of the Wind, the lost world that they're talking about is actually a horrific one. Mm -hmm. That there's more beauty in the post-apocalyptic landscape, even if it's in these little islands where people can actually live. And one of the things that's interesting about that movie is that you look at the way that everyone treats the toxic jungle the fungus, these giant insects as, ew, scary bugs, bah! Right. But the main character, Nausicaa, can see the beauty in these things, even if they're dangerous, and realizes that a lot of the danger is the stuff that you bring to it, that Mm -hmm. if you come at it aggressively, it actually comes back at you in an aggressive way. It's sort of karmic in that way. Sure. But the fact is, is the world that came before, the world of the giant warrior that just toppled cities in flames, Mm. that was the dark world. That was the evil world. Right. And this one that seems scary now is actually quite beautiful if you're able to get past your prejudices. So in that sense, it's sort of the opposite of. But you could see what you're talking about in Castle in the Sky, the, I guess, Atlantean-style city of Laputa, Mm -hmm. this flying, beautiful, lost age where people were able to create these beautiful, magical things, and how we don't quite know how to recreate that again. So I can see it there, but I see actually the opposite in Nausicaa. Interesting. Lauren, what about you? Do you think that it's that it's can be a little heavy-handed, the sort of nostalgia that Miyazaki's trying to create for his movies? I don't. I feel like all good stories really rest on emotion or evoking some sort of emotional response out of the person. And it's something that I've always strived for in my work. And the fact that all of these movies have left so many people with such really strong images in their minds that they keep hearkening back to it really speaks for you know how good he is at his job and what it is that makes his work so memorable. I mean, there's plenty of movies out there that I've seen that like they're pretty and they're entertaining when I watch them, but you know the second I'm out of that theater, they start fading. And I never recall those images in the way that I do like some of the images from the Miyazaki movies. So, uh, you know, I'm a person who, you know, I love emotion in my movies. I love like emotional scenes and so the more he can put that in there, the happier it makes me. Hmm. Rosalind? Piggybacking on that a little bit, there's a difference between something that evokes an emotional response and something that's sentimental. I would hmm. say that Miyazaki's movies, are they definitely provoke an emotional response. When I think sentimental, I think like 
oh, that's nostalgic. That's a happy thing that keeps me, you know, it's comfort food for your mind. It's like Disneyland. Yeah. Right. I think there's definitely elements of that in Miyazaki's movies, like the happier times from up on Poppy Hill was the one that I saw most recently. Right. I mean, and that could kind of, if it were filmed in live action, it would have been a Japanese drama set in the 60s. Sure. And uh, it was cute and it was set in a school and there you go. But there were also Miyazaki movies that were evoking emotional responses that were like, holy crap, that guy just got his head taken off by an arrow. (laughs) And like, that's an emotional (laughs) response too. Right. So I think it really depends on the context of the actual story. And that's interesting that you bring that up because this is one way in which Mononoke is totally different than every other Miyazaki movie. And I don't know if this was just bowing to the fact that ultraviolet animation was just sort of reaching anime, was trying to reaching its peak in the 90s. It's the only one of the Miyazaki movies where you have something so gruesome. And by standards to other anime standards, like a guy losing his head from a demonically shot arrow is not uncommon. And it wasn't the way they portrayed it was not particularly gory. But that was a very violent and very uncommonly Miyazaki moment for that movie. But it's still a Miyazaki moment because it has weight. It has an emotional resonance to it. And a lot of those animes that you're talking about don't have that. It's a, oh shit moment. But like Lauren is saying, that once you walk away from it, it fades very quickly in most other people's work. Right. I mean, it's a McG, Roland Emmerich <laughs> sort of I can't moment. I you just brought McG back into this. <laughs> well, it is. It's, these are people who'd be probably best suited to making music videos right. because they can make an image that isn't necessarily a story, but it's a series of images that evoke short-term reactions. Hmm. But there isn't really the weight there where you're caring about these people. One of the things that I love that Miyazaki does is when big things happen or when gory things happen or where scary things happen, They're happening to a person. They're happening to something that has an emotional context. There's relevancy to the narrative, too. Exactly. It isn't just, oh, look at that. That was totally cool. (laughs) (laughs) There's a real sense of this is horrifying. And there are those little moments of violence. And I wouldn't say Mononoke created that for Miyazaki. Those moments actually exist in Nausicaa, which is Mm, one of his very first films. That's true. But someone gets shot, they get shot off screen, right? Well, no. I mean, there's a scene where Princess Nausicaa is going to rescue a baby Ohm, which is those giant potato bugs of death. Right, right, right. And the Tolmikians, I believe, have a baby. And they're using this thing and torturing it to get the big parents, the big world city-destroying monsters. Right. And provoking them into attacking the valley. Isn't there a scene where she goes berserk and like takes out seven guards too? She it's kills not them. bloody, but yeah, she does she kill like them. And yeah, she flashes a guy. That's true. Yeah. They're in with her dad and she just goes nuts with her little knife or sword or whatever right. she's got. Right, That's true. That's so true. later on when she goes after to protect that baby Ohm, she dives at that and the guys on the platform that are dragging it, it has harpoons sticking in its That's, side and it's yeah. openly bleeding blue right. blood. And it's a baby. I mean, again, going back to a theme that we brought from last month with the Planet <laughs> of the Apes thing, we're torturing children again. Right. Non-human children, but children nonetheless. And right. he's able with this non-expressive monster that is basically a potato bug with these multiple spider eyes on mm-hmm. it. The sense of pathos and sadness that you can make you feel yep. rather than just exploitation. Yeah. And when he, she dives down to save it, they shoot Nausicaa with a gun. There's a splatter of blood. That stains her dress, and that's something you don't often see. And this is why they use laser guns in a lot of Saturday right. morning cartoons like right. G.I. Joe, right. because you can stun somebody with a laser gun. <laughs> but even that has the epitome of narrative relevance because it fulfills a prophecy. 
Yes. So. Right. I mean, her dress literally becomes drenched with the blood of this baby, and it becomes part of the actual story. That isn't something you'd ever see in Disney. Blood is not a word that ever gets spoken, maybe unless somebody pricks their finger in Sleeping Beauty, but right. there's a sense of consequence in his movies that you don't really get from a lot of the Disney films, even really good ones. I'm glad you brought that up because this one thing is inevitable because for Americans to contextualize why Miyazaki is important, we've seen this phrase over and over again that Miyazaki is the Japanese Walt Disney or whatever, which I legitimately think is an unfair characterization. And so does Miyazaki himself. He says, Disney was a producer, I'm a director. So they're two different sort of things. It's a comparison that he's obviously uncomfortable with. And I think, well, on the surface, you could say that some Miyazaki elements tend to be Disney-esque in sort of their scale and their scope and that can be uh, marketed towards children. Miyazaki himself, in one of his essays, says that on the theory of film animation, Miyazaki says, films must not be produced out of idle nervousness or boredom or used to recognize, emphasize, or amplify true vulgarity. And in that context, I must say that I have in Disney's works. The barrier to both the entry and exit of Disney films is too low and too wide. To me, they show nothing but contempt for the audience. Wow. Which is, which is he's trying to draw himself at the polar opposite of what a Disney film is, right? And I don't really know what the true vulgarity is, is that he might be speaking of. I mean, I'm sure there are a few that we could name here. But I mean... There seems to be a, more than a little bit of synchronicity and the point when they bought Studio Ghibli's distribution rights when Disney bought it in 1996 was around the time when they were winding down their own 2D animation, right? And they were doubling down on 3D animation. And Miyazaki is still committed to making this painstaking 2D animation while the American predecessor, the people that who comparing him to are basically just tapping out. Sorry, no more 2D animation. I mean, what do you guys think about the comparison given the relationship that they have now? Well, on one hand, I can see what spirit in which the comparison was made, which I think it's intended to be a high compliment. Hmm. That you're saying that he is that guy, the animation guy, because the name Walt Disney is synonymous with feature-length, lush, beautifully painted animated movies right. that are considered art, rather than this is a bunch of junk that we shove in front of you to pad out time before the real movie starts. Right. Which is, for a lot of people, that's what animation was before Walt Disney created it. On the other hand, he is right that Disney's not a producer. And if you look at the level of influence that Miyazaki has, he actually draws this stuff. One of the things that is very common in Japanese animation is that before you produce an animated film, you produce a manga. You do a comic book right. of the story that you're going to do, which he draws and writes. So he has this level of commitment and work that he puts into this stuff that I don't think a lot of American animators, certainly not working for Disney, have where they may do the initial sketches, but I think that on one level, Disney's also a businessman and he doesn't want to be seen as the Walt Disney, the other side of that name, which is giant conglomerate corporation, Right. which he doesn't see himself that way. There's a much more singular voice in Miyazaki's films than there are in Disney because, again, when we're talking about the multi-billion dollar company, we're talking about something that's much more careful and much more conservative about the way it does business mm -hmm. and also the way that it portrays characters on screen that takes fewer risks. Certainly not the sort of risks that Miyazaki takes because if you look at his last film, sure. The Wind Rises, there certainly would be no way that Disney would decide to do a movie about a Japanese aviator from the 1920s. Absolutely. Lauren, what do you think about the comparison between uh, Miyazaki's work and Walt Disney Animation? It's pretty much just been answered. Like everything you just said about it is pretty much exactly how I feel. Like, I have referred to it before as Disney in Japan, but usually when I do, it's when I'm talking to someone who 
you know, it's the person who says, oh, so you draw the show? And I say, yes, that's what I draw the show. <laughs> and then they say, oh, who's Miyazaki? I say, oh, well, he's like Disney in Japan. But, you know, on a literal level, obviously not. They're two completely different things. But, you know, it's just on that most, like, basic sense of they make movies. They're both kind of like the name in their country that you refer to with animation. You said it in a much nicer way than I will ever be able to put it into words. <laughs> Just to preempt myself somewhat, I am by no means an arbiter or expert on any culture. My own Japanese Klingon, take your pick. <laughs> but uh, I think in that statement, like you were kind of going, well, vulgarity, I don't really know what that means. I think it might be more, uh, this is kind of a disparaging way to say it, but lowest common denominator. Sure. In the terms sure. of accessibility. Yep. And yep. I think that Disney is definitely art to me. I think there's myriad amounts of talent that goes sure. on in the average Disney film. And I'm right. sure that, you know, it's a huge process. But when I hear Miyazaki go, I'm not Disney, I think he might be kind of not only comparing himself to the man, but also the fact that in American and Western culture, you can have a name and associate your name with a brand and become that mm. brand. Mm. You notice that we have Disney films and then we don't have Miyazaki films necessarily. We have right. Studio Ghibli films. Yeah, and I true. think there's definitely a cultural issue going on there. And part of that is because Miyazaki is not the only director who works for Studio Ghibli, right? And Studio Ghibli, mm -hmm. the Tales of Earthsea movie and Up on Poppy Hill, mm -hmm. these were not directed by Hayao Miyazaki, but they were written by him, right? You can tell there's a creative hand of his in it. And even for stuff like Grave of Fireflies, which is not a Miyazaki movie in any way, it's a Studio Ghibli movie. And so it's more serious. It involves children. The animation is gorgeous. Like there are some similarities which make it in that way a little bit more like Disney, right? Because mm -hmm. there are different directors, different writers, different animators working on each one. And they're all can be thematically different. You know, I don't necessarily think he's the Japanese Walt Disney. I think he might be the Japanese Don Bluth. Because if oh, you look at the difference comparison. between Bluth films and Disney films, because Bluth did briefly work for Disney in the 1980s, right. which is Bluth usually has a bit more gravity in his films. There's more consequences. And I think it comes from the philosophy that I think Miyazaki shares, which is that children can handle difficult subjects, that you don't need to completely shield them from them. You need to handle it with tact. You need to handle it gently, but that you can trust them to be little human beings rather than things that you pander to. Hmm. And I think that may hmm. be a comparison that he sees, which is Disney is a brand that you slap all over things. And I think he's very conscious of things like Studio Ghibli being a brand that means quality. And I think that you get that technical quality with Disney, but it's not the sort of company that is willing to do passion projects in the way that he does. That's an interesting thought. Hmm. Are there any Miyazaki interviews? I've never come across any where he comments on Don Bluth. I've never heard any comparison. I'm sure he's aware of them. I'm sure. I'm not, but I can definitely see more of a connection between his work and something like The Secret of Nim. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Or All Dogs Go to Heaven. I mean, these are much more non-conventional stories that have characters that aren't necessarily all good or all bad. Like in the question of All Dogs Go to Heaven, the main character voiced by Burt Reynolds starts out as kind of a bad guy. And right. you see him become a good guy over the course of the movie itself. That's something that you would see more likely in a Miyazaki film, which is much more about emotional and character complexity mm -hmm. and less, I hesitate to say formulaic, but there is a Disney formula that we're all familiar with. It's true. And, I, and one of the things that I noted on here is that I was trying to list the attributes out that I thought that were unique to Miyazaki works. And I listed them sort of under the category of unconventional. Miyazaki doesn't do musicals. 
There's no song breaks in that where the characters sing. There are some songs in some of them, but they're not related to the character emoting through musical number. He doesn't do sequels. He avoids being pigeonholed into any one specific genre. I think for a reviewer in Time Magazine said of him that for Miyazaki, the dramatic punch is delivered not with a show-stopping musical number or high-tech wizardry, but with simple, stunning imagery that still takes your breath away. And I think that there's something that's totally ineffable where someone could try their entire life to be able to fit in the emotional resonance in a single shot in a Miyazaki movie, but can't do it and still be in this amorphous place where you can't tell what kind of movie it is. It's just a Miyazaki movie. Yeah, there's something subtle in the tone that makes it Miyazaki. And that's why when I look at comparing him not just to animators, but comparing him to filmmakers, the comparison I find myself making over and over again, and I keep coming back to it, is the Coen brothers. Huh. Oh, wow. <laughs> you look at a lot of really talented filmmakers out there, and these are people that I really enjoy, but they tend to do a very similar movie over and over and over again. Hmm. They could be in different settings, with different plots, with different characters, but there's something about it that they just keep repeating because it's what they're good at. And I mean people like Wes Anderson or Sam Peckinpah, George Romero. Can I say to a lesser extent... Quentin Tarantino. Hmm. Hmm. There's something that just kind of repeats. These are all really talented people, and I love their work. The Coen brothers, however, there's a greater deal of variety, not just in terms of the setting and the story, but the tone. Sure. Raising Arizona is a totally different movie than Fargo, mm -hmm. but there's something about it that ties these two movies together. There's a sensibility. There's a style, even if the tone is completely different. Right. And I think Miyazaki's like that, too, and you could make that same comparison. My Neighbor Totoro... Princess Mononoke. Yeah. These are very different movies, but there's something about them. Clearly, you feel safe giving a five-year-old a copy of My Neighbor Totoro. You're not going to sit them in front of Princess Mononoke Probably until they're not. like 13. Probably not. Probably not. It's like, here, watch, watch this boar covered in these worm things <laughs> try to kill somebody. Enjoy, kid. But there's nothing objectionable in My Neighbor Totoro. It's a gloriously fucking charming film. Yeah. I love it. Yeah. And it's really what I like to call an all-ages film. Not a kid's movie, an all-ages film. There's something in that movie for every audience. And there's a crucial difference between that, what's considered all-ages versus what's this is directed toward children. Mm -hmm. Conceivably, you could have an adult going to a Disney movie by themselves, but people would look a little askance at that. Sure. I have to admit, I've been that creepy dude. Uh-oh. <laughs> <laughs> Lauren, I want to get your take as an actual filmmaker about... Miyazaki convention or unconventionalism as in terms of the things that you know need to be done in an animated piece to tell a story. Where does Miyazaki fall on this scale of conventions? It's a little difficult because there's definitely like the cultural difference. I can find something about each of his films that I love, but I'm not always in love with the story like on every level. Hmm. And a lot of that is just because I'm more used to the story, I guess, in the American sense, where you kind of want that conflict climax resolution. Right. And Miyazaki doesn't always follow that route. And that does not make it a bad movie by any means. It just makes it a different movie. Sure. But there's always something in each of his movies, like whether I like the story or not, I can still appreciate it on some level. You know, whether it's for the character acting or the relationship or just the cinematography of it. It's difficult for me to really pin him down. Hmm. As far as like you versus the stuff that I would consider like a good story in a movie. 
I guess I try not to, to stick exactly to that because it, I was just going by whether or not it was a good story. Then like so much of the beauty of the art mm-hmm. would just kind of get clumped into this not such a strong movie sort of thing. You got to look at it holistically. Yeah, that's true. And you brought this up, Lauren. This is one of my points here is that viewing this as Americans in our context. I mean, we are all mm-hmm. from America. And in so many respects, we're viewing anime as outsiders. Of course, there are superficial differences like eating with chopsticks or sleeping <laughs> on tatami mats or something, right? Like that can be easily... A lot of sliding doors. There's, there's, there is lots <laughs> of sliding doors. But I was prepared doors. for that for watching a lot of Star Trek. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, there are other things that are a little harder to grok because I think they run afoul of sort of the European symbology and European narrative conventions that we have. So animism is a huge thing for Miyazaki about the spirits being in things, being in trees, in rocks, in the grass, in the wind. These can be arguably linked to Japanese Shintoism, right? I mean, it's just part of he grew up. There's certain post-war sensibilities that a Japanese person would have about pacifism and a critique of military aggression, which is also a very common theme that has there. A fear of extinction-level disasters. <laughs> that, that's super common. I live with that fear every day. <laughs> I, and I guess the question that I'm saying is that based on these ways that we're viewing it as an outside, are these a barrier to enjoying a Miyazaki movie? Because I know that they can make it unscrutable in some ways for an American audience. I would argue that the value of something deals with a couple of different factors. One is the, the effort that you put into it. I know people that will watch a movie and then go look it up on the Internet and then read right. Like, you know, Mononoke takes place in, I think, the Muromachi period, which is like 1200s, 1300s. And I know people that went, well, I watched that film. I'm going to go read a book on the Muromachi period. I'll get back to you. But I also know people who, in terms of casual viewing, can appreciate it. Yeah, they may not get all of the cultural nuance. I I certainly didn't. But I think, again, I mentioned looking at something holistically for a story. I think if you take the entire package, you can still appreciate things at a certain depth even if bits of it may be inaccessible or inscrutable to you. And Hmm. in the American context, there's tons of fiction I can think of off the top of my head that I've read a book and I'm like, well, gee, I don't know about, you know, existentialism, so I'm never going to be able to fully appreciate this book or whatever. I think you can still appreciate something on specific levels for what it is, even if you can't access all of it. Hmm. I don't necessarily think his movies are impenetrably Japanese either. I think that one of the things that he's really fascinated with are creating these settings that, yes, sometimes you have a movie like Spirited Away or Princess Mononoke, which are very Japanese. But if you look at the design of the buildings and the places and the cities in things like Kiki's Delivery Service. Mm -hmm. Which was modeled after a European city, right? right? Yeah, there's something kind of Bavarian slash Scandinavian about it. I think there's a specific city in Sweden that they went to. Hmm. I think it was Stockholm. It was Stockholm. But there's a very different European vibe to it. And you can say there's certain things that he likes from around the world. And I think sometimes we have a tendency as Americans to be very self-centered in this way that we tend to think that we're universal, but everyone else's culture is so specific. That's why when you see superhero teams in Marvel comics that are from Canada, everyone, they're all based on the individual cultural stereotypes that we see (laughs) of that place where they can't just have a generic fire guy the same way we do. I think that we have a tendency to see that, and with Miyazaki, he's very much universal, too. The things that interest him aren't just things in Japan. Right. The interesting thing about Laputa is it's actually based on a Jonathan Swift setting from Gulliver's Mm -hmm. Travels. I mean, that's a European book. So his interests are just as varied as anyone else's, and I think sometimes we have a tendency to think, we're the people that travel the world. And everyone else just lives in their little bubble and occasionally shares their art with us. But 
He really is a worldwide creator. He's someone who creates not just for Japanese viewers, but he creates for everybody. I think that I have no problem getting into his worlds. I think there's probably, because he is somebody who was born and raised and lives in Japan, that sensibility is clearly there in the way that if I were to make films or when Lauren makes films, there's an American sensibility. There's a sense of humor. There's a cultural context. But there's no problem I have sinking slowly into this world and understanding it and enjoying it. There's nothing about these movies that say that an American can't love them. The one thing, too, that Miyazaki is very vocal about his work is the value of escapism in his work. And there's a, a quote where he says, permanent artistic value of a film is not important. The viewers usually only possess a very limited ability to comprehend a film, but they feel liberated by their daily frustrations and the feeling of being overwhelmed. To discover a feeling of adoration, of honesty, and of something positive that they didn't know that they had in themselves, that's his goal of making a film. Personally, when I'm watching a Miyazaki movie, I'm able to sort of displace my own ego and suspend disbelief a little bit further. But I think the escapism, especially coming from these could be considered kids' movies, could be one of the critiques you could say about Miyazaki's movies, is that they are pure fantasy. I think to go back to the previous question that you were throwing around, that sense of escapism is a very universal ideal, hmm. too. I think pretty much everybody, and it's kind of timeless. Like the idea, of, yeah, you know, 150 years ago, you were a dude working in a field and you wanted to go to the tavern and have a beer. Now you want to go enjoy a Miyazaki movie. Right. But it's it, this is coupled with the sense that Miyazaki has where he personally believes that there's too much animation. He says it over and over again, and depending on what year the interview is in, he'll increase the number of hours of original animation television there are in Japan, where he thinks we're watching too much. And he is someone who's actually contributing to this. Like, he believes that we are escaping too much. Is it a criticism of people being in front of screens, or is it of animation overtaking live action? It's both. I mean, it's both a criticism of people wasting too much time, and it's also us producing a glut of escapism. It's, to me, that runs directly afoul of how he wants his movies to be viewed. Well, I think there's something about his movies that are timeless. Yes, I can drown myself in his movies, but I think that his movies aren't empty calories the way a lot of things are, that mm. I'm just filling time because I have to run to work in an hour. What can I do to fill that time so that I don't have to sit with my own thoughts? <laughs> <laughs> I think that there's something about his movies where they stick with you, but you don't immediately want to rewatch them. You want right. to let them digest. You want to let these things sit with you for a little bit and think about them. And I think that sort of entertainment, while I don't think all entertainment has to be Citizen Kane, hmm. I'm all for empty calories. Sometimes I just want to eat a deep fried donut or something. <laughs> I want to eat something that is bad for me. I don't think that everything should be exactly the same. Sometimes I want junk food and sometimes I want to feed my brain. Hmm. And I think sometimes having a diet that's a mix of things, including things that you want to sit with for a while, it continues to entertain you after that two-hour time it goes on, so it's still working in your brain. So I'm not looking at another screen, but I can use that thought process to start a conversation with someone. So I guess I don't think he necessarily is adding to a problem. I think he's kind of fixing that. Hmm. Lauren, this sounds like he might have been having a shot across your bow a little bit. Maybe if you can comment a little bit about maybe some of the throwaway aspect of TV animation as it relates to Miyazaki, because he's just doing animation too. Yeah, I mean... I guess I'm a little confused as to why he would be frowning on the escapist aspect of it. Because as a filmmaker, if your audience is sitting watching, you know, the thing you've made and they are not in it, if they're looking at their phone or thinking of anything else, 
then you've not really done your job. Hmm. The job is to kind of captivate that audience and make them believe in that story. So I, I would hope that the person would want to dedicate themselves completely to what I'm presenting them at the time. As far as him saying that maybe there's too much animation, or I honestly have no idea. <laughs> I know that there's a crap ton of anime out there, and like for every one good anime, there's about 15 terrible ones. Sure. Uh, as far as American animation, if you're comparing it to live action, there's no question that animation is dwarfed by the amount of live action content hmm. out there. It's such a small industry, and... Yeah, I I don't even know. I don't know what that guy's talking about. <laughs> Who does he think he is? Right. <laughs> I, you're right. I mean, and I think it might also be a thing where manga and anime as genres in Japan is much larger audience, right? Like adults will read comic books and they won't have the yeah. stigma of being grown whiny grown man children, right? Uh, why are you looking at me? <laughs> <laughs> I was I was just I was looking past you, Mike. <laughs> but you know, like in Japan, they take it a lot more seriously and sure they have live action, they've got reality shows and they've got dramas and mm -hmm. comedies and whatnot, but Roslyn, speak up here. You have probably watched a lot of Japanese TV in your time. Don't judge me. <laughs> I've watched weird Japanese television. Right. I've watched good Japanese television and bad Japanese television. Right. But the thing that I was going to say was actually you go, okay, well, grown adults can read manga and it's not considered as stigmatized here. I do think that tide is kind of changing in the States. And oh, I think yeah. manga is a pretty mm -hmm. big influence because of that. Hmm. But I'm going to start railing on globalization now and I need to go get on a soapbox. But... <laughs> Like any other facet of our lives right now, variety is increasing. Hmm. And whether it's comic books, whether it's food, whether it's any other type of entertainment, this might... <laughs> I think Miyazaki was someone who was raised in the 40s, and it sounds simply like a common complaint of folks who were born in the 40s. Huh. I hear... <laughs> it feels a little bit like a get-off-my-lawn sort of... It does. Interesting. Yeah. Very Which, interesting. And you know what? They're totally entitled to have that argument, and probably... We're all roughly in our 30s here. Mm -hmm. We probably, when we're in our 60s, are going to start shaking our canes and saying similar stuff about it. This cartoon us. isn't as good as Masters of the Universe. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I think, though, that the more we have, the better things get. And I think hmm. that when you have bigger audiences, that creates diversity. And when you have a diverse audience, it creates demands to create more things for different groups of people. And to create things that appeal to more than just a, and I'm speaking as a comic book fan here, <laughs> uh -oh. an overprivileged, entitled group of whiny fanboys <laughs> that demand that every product be catered directly to them and be impenetrable to anybody else. Well, that's what's curious to me about Miyazaki is that it is not directed towards a single and narrow demographic. And maybe that's what he's railing against really is that he's saying also that no one does what I do. And when they try, they obviously don't do as well. But the beauty of having so much, and again, I'm somebody who is a staunch believer in the principle of Sturgeon's Law, the idea that 90% of everything is shit. <laughs> and you know what the beautiful thing about this? The more things there are, the bigger that 10% of awesome stuff gets, yeah. the more diverse that stuff gets. You know, the beautiful thing about having more than just five TV channels is, yes, there's a lot of bullshit out there. There is... The catch about that law, I'm sorry to interrupt you, the catch about that law is also that it can be relative. Your 10% of awesome is not necessarily someone else's 10% of awesome. Oh, that's true. And the beautiful thing is because I am certainly not having my thumb to the pulse of many Americans on what they enjoy, like a honey boo-boo type bullshit, <laughs> I don't have to watch that because it's not Poor one of five things on TV anymore. Right. It's one right. of a hundred things on TV, and it is so easy to avoid things that I hate. Just leave honey boo-boo alone. <laughs> <laughs> good families. 
And certainly in, in the 80s, for example, if you were in America or in Japan, no internet, right? You had broadcast and cable television. You only could watch what was on. Yeah. Someone had control. And now you can choose. You have your entire lifespan plus a thousand years of things that you could watch of the genre that you love. All the crap you can want. Yeah, not even just stuff that's being broadcast now, but you continue to watch things that have been recorded from prior eras. You can watch things whenever you want. You don't have to watch them at broadcast time. I don't remember the last time I watched a television show at the time it's originally broadcast. Maybe the news? <laughs> I didn't buy the season five of CNN. Oddly, I can tell you that the only things that I still watch as broadcast are cartoons. Yeah, huh. I don't think yeah. it's a bad thing that there's more cartoons. So you know what? I think Miyazaki's wrong about this. Hmm. I think Rosalind really put her finger on it, which is that this kind of sounds like get off my lawn, kids. This isn't what I grew up with. And Miyazaki is older. You know, he is a brilliant man, but it doesn't make him right about everything. Hmm. So this is an interesting way to segue into our next topic that I wanted to talk about. One major theme of Miyazaki's works is his unique sense of good and evil. There's a quote that I've read many times in doing the research for this, which is, he says, see the good in that which is evil and the evil in that which is good. Pledge yourself to neither side, but vow instead to preserve the balance between the two. It is actually interesting with, with a few notable exceptions. I think Castle in the Sky is one of them, but his villains aren't villains. One thing I think that sets him apart from a lot of other storytellers is humanizing the antagonist. Mm -hmm. His protagonists either struggle to resolve something in themselves or struggle to strike the balance with nature, which is obviously a nature can't be the antagonist, right? Or a struggle against an antagonist that we get to know. This is like The Wire or The Game of Thrones, where the villain is not really a villain because you come to understand and empathize with the reasons why he or she does what they do. It sounds like you're talking about the very plot of Nausicaa of the Valley of the Wind. That's true, yes. This is a movie that takes place in a post-apocalyptic landscape. Society has wiped itself out in a war that involved these giant Godzilla-sized warriors that burnt civilization to the ground and that the earth revolted against it and created this massive, toxic, fungal jungle all over the world, populated by these giant potato bug monsters that when you try to burn this jungle back, will fuck your shit up. <laughs> and it's amazing how he can make essentially this large segmented beetle with spider eyes utterly terrifying. Right. And of course, our reaction again to seeing things that are ugly, like insects, is to want to crush it, to burn it, to tear it down. And the villains in Nausicaa are doing something that is very logical that they see this thing that is spreading and killing humanity. So it makes total sense to want to burn it to the ground. Mm -hmm. And the thing that, like you said, finding the humanity in the inhuman, Nausicaa's real strength is the fact that she's compassionate. Right. That she's able to see humanity and decency and kindness and pain in these things that are utterly kind of hideous and ugly. And again, let's just say that you go into your car, you sit down and on your steering column is this giant fucking spider. You are going to jump back. I don't care how big and tough you are. That's terrifying to anybody. And the fact that we have a heroine who can see humanity in those things, she's utterly brave. She mm -hmm. is fearless and she right. puts herself in danger to protect people who don't know better. Like I said, that's universal for Miyazaki. So I can say that Prince Ashitaga in Princess Mononoke is the same way. He, after discovering that it was a bullet from one of the guards from Irontown who poisoned the boar, 
he goes to Irontown, who otherwise would be the enemies of the forest, right? Then you come to understand that the residents of Irontown are all former prostitutes or lepers or people who otherwise their society would have given up on them and not found a way to support them. But they all love Lady Iboshi because of the opportunity she gives them to lead productive lives. They're able to have normal lives. It's like in Ponyo, for example. Ponyo is the same thing as the, the sea is angry. <laughs> right? The sea is angry and it you think it's going to drown everyone, but there's a reason why. The sea is not an indiscriminate killer. The sea is housing life and is trying to respond to get back its young. The elements that personify the sea are afraid that their young is going to die and they're trying to retrieve it. This seems to be a commonality that, sadly, I don't think that you often see a lot in animation. Another thing to bring up is by humanizing the villains and giving more complexity to all of the characters, it kind of speaks to the nature of Miyazaki as a pacifist. Because if you don't have the dichotomy of good and evil, the idea of good guys and bad guys, villains and heroes, whatever, that whole idea of uh, how can you have a war if there are no bad guys? Because we need someone to color as the enemy. If there is no enemy, there is no war. And I'm sounding a bit like Yoda right now for some reason, but like I can totally see how that would play into his storytelling from an ideological standpoint, too. Hmm. What about it, Lauren? Are heroes and villains bullshit? I got to go back to your original question when you asked what my first experience was to Miyazaki and seeing Princess Mononoke. That was the first time I had really noticed that in this animated feature, there was no specific bad guy. Hmm. There was just Lady Boshi who... You're set up to think she's a bad guy, but it turns out she's not bad. She might be doing something that's kind of not okay for these people, but it's all relative. Like, what's bad for them is good for them. Nothing was super clear. And the closest that I've ever gotten to that in American animation was working on Avatar The Last Airbender. Mm. But even that still had to ride the line. We still had, like, the Fire Lord who was just evil, but we had Zuko and, and these other characters who, they were very complex. And it was so rewarding. Brian Knetzko, one of the creators, he always say, like, good stories are made when bad people do good things or good people do bad things. Right. And it's something that working in American animation, which is specifically considered for children, trying to make mature storylines with mature characters in that way, it's almost non-existent. We have to kind of fight. <laughs> we really have to fight for it. Sure. You know, I'm working on a show now and we're trying to write the story and, and make it interesting, but we're kind of always being told, like, focus groups, kids are stupid, kids don't understand, hmm. bad guy has to be bad, good guy has to be good. But I think storytelling has, the bar has raised. It's been a long time since, like, the 80s cartoons that we used to watch where Destructicons are bad, Autobots <laughs> are good. That's right. just it. Right. And now people don't accept that. They want their characters to have, to have motivations. You know, I experienced it for the first time really noticing it in Miyazaki, and I love that aspect of it. Hmm. And I think it's incredible, and I think it's a sign of a higher form of storytelling. One of the things Lauren is talking about that I think is dead on, which is that the audience is becoming more sophisticated. You can see this in every form of entertainment, stuff aimed at kids, things aimed at adults, things that aimed at audiences of all ages. Look at comic books from the 1930s and 40s, then look at comic books of the 1960s, comic books of the Mm -hmm. 1990s. There's a clear difference there. Characters' motivations are much more nuanced. Dialogue is less stilted. And the audience, still at this point directed largely at children, it's expected that they can understand a greater deal of complexity. That increased a great deal going into the 1970s and the 1980s. And we started seeing comic books aimed more at adults. And I think I'm seeing animation follow this exact same trajectory. Hmm. 
this is something that we can trust from our children. This is something that Don Bluth and Miyazaki, I think, are very good at, which is the focus group is wrong. The focus group who says that children are dumb and we just want to sell them toys, that's not what children are like. I'm not a fan of children at all, but even (laughs) I know that they're basically little people and that they understand a lot more and pick up far more than we give them credit for. And they can understand, well, we're certainly not going to hand them a copy of Proust. We're going to be able to get them to understand things a lot more complicated than anything else because it's not hard for them to see humanity in these drawings. Hmm. And it's a great opportunity for parents to use this to teach their kids. Don't you see right there, this person is trying to do the right thing, but see how they didn't pay attention or they didn't think about how what they were doing affects other people. These are the sort of conflicts that certainly we're not talking about flying cities and giant bugs, Mm -hmm. but these are things that children can understand. And these are problems that children run into, not just dealing with classmates and other people and stuff around the house and their parents. These are universal things. Children can see parables and things like this. And I think that rather than dumb it down and make a series of white hats and black hats, we should embrace that and understand that children are intelligent. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Most of them. I think that that sort of (laughs) most of them, (laughs) except the ones that we're not going to pay attention to. Now, I think that that also holds true for, again, soapbox, I apologize, but like the formation of a healthy adult is someone who can relate to fiction in their everyday life and hopefully extrapolate something useful from it. Mm. I know people that were like, well, I didn't watch cartoons as a kid or I didn't watch television as a kid. And therefore, now I don't get fiction. I think it's a waste of time. And it feels like I don't want to make the leap that those people are lacking empathy. I'm sure they're not completely. Oh, they're fucking monsters. Goddamn automatons. (laughs) But I think that there's something that they're definitely lacking in the human experience because there's something in terms of the formation of relatability that they kind of lost. I think that human beings are storytelling machines. In 1997, they pushed the button (laughs) and started Skynet. (laughs) They they are now storytelling machines. (laughs) And the humans are the resistance. You look at the way we interact with each other. Politicians that are successful are people that can tell stories. Hmm. People that can teach well. Educators are storytellers. They can Mm -hmm. just take something and relate it to people as a story. This is why people like Carl Sagan and Bill Nye are great science educators. Hmm. And I think that great storytellers, Miyazaki included, sees beauty in things that otherwise other people just skip over. It's easy to make a sunset beautiful. Hmm. It's hard to make a toxic jungle beautiful, but he does. Right. One of the things that really separates Miyazaki from everyone else is that we talk about the 15 anime that suck versus the one that's good. There's a lot of noise out there. There's a lot of things that are saying, hey, look at me, look at me, I'm fucking awesome. I just have a giant fucking sword. Kill the monster. (laughs) And I think you can see that in American cinema too. Michael fucking Bay. (laughs) It's this empty, violent, stupid spectacle where everything has to move. And there's this sense of insecurity about it because I've said this about Dark Knight Rises. I've said this about Star Trek Into Darkness. There's a sense that a lot of movies out there are afraid to stop moving because they don't trust their own material enough to stand on its own Mm. when an audience has a chance to breathe and think about it. The visual equivalent to a Nickelback song. Yeah, we just (laughs) barrel ahead, barrel ahead. I can't stop moving or they're going to see all the fucking plot holes and problems. That was so interesting that you bring that up because just a couple weeks ago, I was watching the Disney feature Robin Hood. You know, that was in the 60s, right? That was about the golden age of Disney animation. What I was struck by, having seen um, several Miyazaki movies before and after, is that in those Disney movies, the pieces of the frame that are animated never stand still. 
And this is perhaps a stereotype about Japanese animation that for production purposes, they have still frames where there's just a reaction, you know, just a... <gasps> the motion lines and people like giving you seizures through the screen. Or, or perhaps it's just the face and the mouth the just mouth sort of moving, moves yeah. with three different frames, sort of a, as a cost-saving measure. In a traditional hand-drawn cell animated Disney movie, everything is moving. Everything that isn't part of the background is doing this overly presentational, overly exaggerated, flowing sort of movement. And Miyazaki, yes, it is animated well. It's beautifully. They're not recycling too many frames. But what it's not doing is it's not overly animated. Well, that's the thing is that there's a confidence and a maturity to his work. And he's not afraid of stillness. He's not afraid hmm. of moments that are quiet, pregnant pauses. He's not afraid of moments that slow down a little bit and let you digest what you just saw. And he can even turn big moments into these small moments. And one of these examples is the earthquake sequence in The Wind Rises. Yeah. Yes, it's this massive earthquake. It's one of the biggest earthquakes Earth has had with human civilization living on it. Yet, he shows it not from the Michael Bay Roland Emmerich 10,000 feet up so we can see entire continental shelves break off and buildings slide into the ocean right. and exploding buildings and nameless people running for this empty, dumb fucking spectacle so you can shovel fucking popcorn into your mouth. Insert guitar riff here. <laughs> yeah, then the Aerosmith kicks in. <laughs> Don't it close He can make this thing huge and utterly terrifying, but keep it on such a personal level. What do we see? We see the coupling between the trains and the pin holding the train pieces together. The pin is rattling in there. We see the jumping right. pebbles. Did you also notice that the sound effects done during that scene were done with a human mouth? No. Like the sound of the earthquake coming is the sound of a person going into a microphone going. So they're not actually taking fully sound effects as you would do or rehashing old sound effects. They're personifying the earthquake with a human voice. A thing to think about when Disney versus Miyazaki and capturing attention in Disney films is to look at the way that Kiki's delivery service was changed from the English dub to the original Japanese. Hmm. They basically would insert bits of music that were never in the Japanese film. There was complete silence. And it was really just they were worried that this will make the audience uncomfortable. It won't keep the kids entertained. Hmm. And they did things like an entire string version of Hall of the Mountain King was inserted into the <laughs> Disney release because they went, well, it's going to be complete silence. It'll be boring. It'll just be Kiki flying or what have you. And then Gigi, who's the cat, mm -hmm. was completely changed. Usually in Japanese culture, cats are considered feminine, so it was a female voice actress. It was Phil Hartman's last role. Right, that's crazy. And they completely rewrote lines for the character to fit Phil Hartman as an SNL alum, and it was really odd just to he see... He's much more of a wisecracking character. Yeah, right. definitely. And to the point where even at the end, I think they changed one of the lines to infer that Kiki could talk to Gigi again at the end. That was the interesting thing with Kiki's delivery service. Getting back to this idea of no villains, there is no obvious antagonist. In Kiki's delivery service. The struggle is her in herself. Yeah, it's about growing up. She knows how to do this stuff because as children, we do stuff without thinking about it. And as adults, we have to learn. So in the course of the movie, she loses the ability to fly and talk to her cat. In the original Japanese version, it's never really shown that she gets that ability back. And like you said, it's sort of implied in a tiny line that she might be able to talk to him again. That it was a question of confidence. I know that Miyazaki intended for her to always lose the ability to talk to Gigi. Hmm. And that Gigi represented her immaturity because he's always kind of a scaredy cat. He's always usually well, saying, we shouldn't do this. We should go away. And she's the one who says, no, we have to be promised to do this. We have to go ahead with it. And the part in the narrative in which they split is the part where Gigi finds the female cat. Is it a male cat when it's the Japanese release? But like it's the peak of sexual awakening is actually when they separate. And then once she has a crisis and comes back, then it's like, oh, I don't understand you anymore. 
I think you could use it as a metaphor for a lot of things that Gigi could represent the sort of voices, the childhood of you, that you give up those parts of your childhood. I think this could also represent the fact that you become a different person when you grow up. And that's what this movie is about, is growing up hmm. and becoming your own person and standing on your own two feet and finding your own sense of identity and purpose. And loss. Yeah, and loss. Yeah, knowing that there's a sense of loss connected with growing up as well. And part of that loss usually comes from childhood friendships because those people are also going through that same process of discovering who they are. And sometimes at the end of that process, you don't have anything in common with somebody who was really close to you. If there's an antagonist to the story, it's basically an inner struggle rather than anything external. Yes, she does get an awesome fucking rescue scene. And <laughs> we don't see enough of those in movies anymore. And this is why I love the scene from Superman the movie so much, because there's something about a really well done scene where a magical hero gets to save somebody who's just in danger. They don't have to be a villain involved. They just have to be falling off of something or hanging from something. And this person comes in and it's kind of tense. And there's that moment of release when they save this person. And I really think that the rescue sequence with the blimp in Kiki's Delivery Service is one of the best in any movie I've ever seen. Wow, that's high praise. Hmm. Well, and it's come to that time of the podcast. We're going to take a short break and we'll be back with High Point, Low Point. And we're back. And it's time for our regular segment we like to call High Point, Low Point. It's where we go to the top of the mountain, the bottom of the barrel. Lauren, what is your low point for Miyazaki? Mine is it's super small and completely personal, but I have a slight pet peeve with his character design of his main characters. Hmm. And I realize it's an anime device where they try to make the main character as simple and generic so that anyone can kind of insert themselves into that role. But like, I look at all of his characters in his movies, especially in Spirited Away, where every other character, freaking No Face, Yubaba, even Haku, like a simple boy, but he had like an interesting iconic look to him you look at him and you know what movie he's from mm -hmm. and it's so incredible and so beautiful and then i adore kiki i love that movie but then i look at her next to the girl from laputa and next to even son from mononoke they're all just kind of very very similar faces similar hairstyles so on just an artistic personal design level i would like to see just you know some Push it. Push it a little bit. <laughs> Eddie had some red hair. That was nice. <laughs> but yeah, it's just, mine is probably like the, the most lamest of the bottom of the barrels. Oh. Next. That's not bad. Rosalind, what do you think here's your low point for Miyazaki? I don't think it's really Miyazaki himself in terms of the way he does his films. There are like tiny pet peeves, but I think the lowest point is, it sounds pretentious but it's other people's reaction to him a lot hmm. a lot of the time people will just kind of shut off if you go wow this movie was amazing it's got such and such and it's a Miyazaki movie and people go well I don't want to watch subtitles boring I'm like well there's yeah. a Disney dub and it's got all these awesome actors from all this and well I don't want to watch a cartoon it feels like a lot of the time it's just kind of hard for people to get into it for one reason or another because they'll shut themselves off from the genre completely hmm. either because it's too foreign or it's considered too kiddie and like hmm. It's sad because people are missing out on an experience, and that kind of bums me out. Hmm. I was in that position for a long time. It really took, I've got nothing to do tonight, and I want to hang out with my friends to get me to see a Miyazaki film, Spirited Away. Hmm. And it was a beautiful fucking movie. It is. I wanted to look at more things that this man had created, because 
I still haven't seen Spirited Away in about 12 years, and I can still so vividly remember pieces of it. When we're talking about that Sturgeon's Law thing, he is squarely in the top 10% of that 10% chunk. I can understand the frustration because I've been that guy on that end so many times saying, you would really like this. It's outside of your comfort zone, but it feels like this piece of culture was built for you and people just don't want to try it because it's foreign. Yeah, Mm -hmm. there's a dose of hypocrisy there on my part too. I was in a foreign country and I'm like, this is foreign. I don't want to watch. (laughs) Like Mm -hmm. I ended up having to crash on a couch and, you know, randomly flip channels to catch it. Hmm. And it opened an entire new series of universes to me that I think have also kind of made me more, in terms of my creative process, expanded the way that I think of things. And it would suck for someone to miss out on it. Rosalind, I love that your low point is on this panel. is the same as your last panel that you had. So bad it's good. Your low point is other people are shit, (laughs) which I agree with. It should always be our low point. The low point, I hate everyone. Finished. Let's all go home. The human race. (laughs) Mike, what is your low point for Miyazaki? I'm afraid I'm about to step into a noose that Rosalind just dropped over (laughs) a bar in the ceiling. But it's hard for me. I struggled with this so much. Mm. I can't find bad things about his work. So I'm going to have to direct this inward and paint the target on my own chest. It's that I don't speak Japanese. Mm. And I feel like I am missing out on a lot of what he has created, both culturally, because when they translate these movies into English, a lot of the cultural context has to change as well. And they also have to match it so that it matches the animations that have already been done. Actors sort of have to step into the shoes of characters that have already been created, and sometimes they have to make adjustments. So I wonder sometimes if there's things that I'm missing. Yet, I have no problem with subtitles in a movie, but when I don't speak Japanese... It feels like my brain and my eyes are in this tug of war between the bottom of the screen and this lush images that I just don't want to look away from because Mm. they're so gorgeous. Yeah. This isn't a problem I have with other movies with subtitles because they don't have that depth and beauty that he puts. Because one of the things that he does really well, we mentioned the cheapness in a lot of animation. You know, you see this in Hanna-Barbera or Filmation especially. Oh my God. People running past the same lamp and table over Mm-hmm. And over on that endless hallway or everybody having the same body language or the weird fucking way that He-Man runs. <laughs> I don't know what that is. Rotoscoped. I don't know. But when you said that he handcrafts his movies, I think that's absolutely true. Everyone is unique. Everything is something special and different. Like the way he creates interesting machines. I am not a car guy or mm. a plane guy or a machine guy, but I can't help but stare And the beginning sequence of The Wind Rises where Jiro starts up that plane. And it's like, this isn't just a simple solid gray box where magic makes a plane fly. This is a machine with moving parts inside of it. And it's so intricate. And when things happen in the movie and people are running away from that earthquake, it's a million people running away. It's not 10 people running away on repeat. Right. When I have to pull myself away from subtitles, I feel like I'm missing a big chunk of it. Hmm. So I guess I prefer the English dub. But really what I'm saying is I really wish his movies could be a little shittier. (laughs) (laughs) To speak to the language thing a little bit. I mean, I'm by no means fluent. I probably, if I watched a Miyazaki film raw, would probably understand like half of it if I were lucky. But I think for for all of the ripping into Disney that we've been doing for the past, what, two hours, hour and a half, 
one of the things that they have gotten much better at in terms of their relationship with Miyazaki movies is translation. Hmm. Initially, and that's because there were different distributors as well in the early days of Miyazaki yeah. movies and things like that. But I think as Miyazaki movies have become more culturally recognized in the West and they've become more of like, this is going to have a big draw in theaters. This is why they're casting top list actors for the voices. They've stepped up the game in terms of their translation ability. And they don't overwrite as much. They have the ability to do lip sync better. Or I notice if like Mononoke, for example, I watched in both English and Japanese when I was getting ready for this because mm. I, I have no life. And <laughs> the main things that didn't get brought across, it was like the levels of cultural inaccessibility where unless mm. you had a really deep understanding of the Japanese historical context and culture, which the average person doesn't and I certainly don't, I don't think it really was lost from the dub to the subtitles. So I think that yeah, you might be missing out when you have to read subtitles and there's this glorious background, but in English, you're not really... Mm. I think it's fine. I get mm. that, and I do like the English dubs a lot. There's never a sense of them just piecing it together to be cheap, and a lot of movies do that. I've seen a lot of movies with bad, I guess you could say, SNES-style English translation, right? <laughs> where everyone is speaking something that I guess is like caveman robot English. Speed racering. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And they really put a lot of work into it. And it took me a while to realize sometimes who the voice actors are, because he doesn't always put them in the opening credits. And I like that. I like not knowing that Billy Crystal is the little spark monster guy in yeah. Howl's Moving Castle, <laughs> right. or that Michael Keaton is Porco Rosso. Yeah, yeah. Or Patrick Stewart in Nasca. Yeah. I was really surprised by that. There's amazing voice acting in here. I mean, it's really, really cool. And then he gets they get top-notch people. So I guess, and again, this feels so. Uh, this feels like I'm copping out because I could go for days with high points, and that's again going to be another struggle: is bringing it down to just one. Right. I just wish, like Rosalind, that there wouldn't be this language and cultural barrier that seems to exist in people's minds that scare them away from even trying it. Well, I think I might be able to come up with one. I similarly had a really difficult time, and I intentionally waited to see Miyazaki's final movie, Wind Rises, as the last movie that I saw. I feel it's the low point for the intersection of several reasons. One is that I actually feel that it's simply his weakest film. As far as being a compelling narrative, having a clear arc for the character, or wanting to draw you into the drama of the character himself. And also, for a man like Miyazaki who staked his career and the long-term sustainability of Studio Ghibli in protest of the current Prime Minister Abe's desire to amend the Japanese constitution to allow them to have something other than a defense force, he wrote an open letter that was a protest, drawing widespread criticism to him where there were elements of society calling him a traitor and calling him anti-Japanese. I think he did a serious injustice to portrayal of the Second World War in this movie, and I'll tell you why. Japanese society is still very hesitant to talk about it, and they can be downright revisionist in the way that they think about it. And despite their culpability for the deaths of tens of millions of people, a subject about which Wind Rises is sort of skirting along the edge of, these histories are glossed over or otherwise totally omitted. And this was a chance that Miyazaki had at the tail end of his career when he was at his most controversial, when he was basically saying, listen, Japanese government, you are betraying the spirit of what it means to be Japanese by trying to make us into a warlike nation again. I think the fact that he sort of helped maintain what is now a popular Japanese counter-narrative about their being goaded into the conflict and them being victims of the, as they are, they are somewhat victims of the Germans in Wind Rises, right? The Germans are these other ethnicity who are dark and there's lots of suspicion going on. There's the double agent that's somehow at the hotel with Jiro that's there manipulating behind the scenes. When he gets back, the secret police are looking at him because of this. There's this idea that 
as respectable and as nuanced of critique of militarism as Miyazaki has had in previous movies, Nausicaa certainly being one of them, Mononoke being another, I'm just disappointed the way he chose to portray this character Jiro, and especially being the inventor of the symbol for Japanese military might during the Second World War. So not just for the fact that it has a hagiography about the war and about the, the man himself who did it, and that it's the final film of Miyazaki, and that he ended his career on a film that I think is so problematic in terms of its story, it's problematic in terms of its history, and it's problematic in terms for what Miyazaki's legacy of his ability to talk about things that aren't often wanted to be talked about. I feel like it was such a big missed opportunity. I have a bit of speculation regarding that. Hmm. The whole issue with the repealing of Article 9 was he accused it of being like, we're taking advantage of people just for low turnouts at the polls and that sort of thing. And hmm. Beyond that, um, was do you know offhand, I want to say that that whole issue with the Yasukuni Shrine and the repealing of Article mm. 9 was throughout 2012 up to this year. Mm. Do you know if the production stages of The Wind Also Rises was coincidental with that or was he working on it for longer? The production cycles got have to be longer than, than two I would years. A, yeah, I would so. assume so. So I'm thinking that to an extent, the writing was coincidental with that controversy and he might not have wanted to attract attention to himself. Well, he drew criticism from both the left and the right Right. with the release of the movie. The left saying that he wasn't sufficiently harsh enough on the character himself as being an agent of what would become terrible. And the right who basically called him a traitor for yeah, not calling our, yeah, their wartime effort foolhardy and futile, basically, is what he says in the movie. Well, let's drag ourselves out of the gutter and let's focus on what the high point of Miyazaki is. Lauren, would you like to take us up to the mountains? Sure. For me, it's more of a career high point, and I think, for me, it's spirited away. Hmm. Even though it's not my personal favorite of his films, for me, it, it encompasses everything that I love about his films into one film. It has incredible designs with all the side characters, an incredible setting, the character relationships. You know, her parents are in it for, like, a few minutes up front, but there's no doubt in my mind that she cares deeply for him, even though she's mad at him in the beginning. Right. They're gone. And this whole you know movie is about this girl trying to find her parents and then just everything. <laughs> 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 and even the character acting, like nobody really does child acting in animation better than Miyazaki, yeah. in my opinion. Like making a child look like a child and act like a child is something that I feel people, especially animation, just fail at regularly. And I'm a fan of Disney. I love a lot of things Disney. Mm -hmm. But the children in their movies, I saw Frozen recently. I, I, I did not really like it so much. <laughs> oh my <laughs> god. You might be, uh, we might have to edit this out, Lauren. It's <laughs> oh. such an unpopular opinion. I know. I know everyone in the world loves it. Yeah. It won an Oscar. I know. I, yep. Dude, you have no idea how much I've struggled with this because I wanted to love that movie so bad. <laughs> and then I saw it and I was just like, ugh. But there's scenes with child Elsa and child Anna, and they don't act like children to me. They just act like little exhibits of how this animator wanted to show you how good he was at animating. Hmm. But Miyazaki, the way he makes Chihiro go down these precarious stairs, oh, yeah. like a 10-year-old girl just clutching these stairs and scooting her butt down. Right. And <laughs> things like that, it's so hard to find people in animation that can understand that and put that in their work. Because really... I guess as story artists in animation, we are creating these characters and we are responsible for how they move and how they act. And you have to be able to understand all those things. And he does it so well. Hmm. And even Ponyo, 
I love that movie basically for Ponyo and for her <laughs> acting throughout. Oh, my God. And, like, just her craziness and, like, her love for Ham and, like, running everywhere <laughs> and just being, like, this crazy little kid. But Spirited Away was, like, a, just a great display of a 10-year-old girl in a fantastical, beautiful environment that you just don't see. You most certainly don't see environments that crazy in American animation. Like, even when they try to make a fantasy land, it never feels quite as real or rooted mm. as it does in mm. the Miyazaki yes. films. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, that movie just kind of took everything about his film that I love and put it into one package where, like, if I had to say to someone, hey... This is kind of how I feel about Miyazaki. Mm. I'd be able to hand them that movie and feel like they would get a good understanding. That's high praise. <laughs> At least the things I like about it. Sure. <laughs> to speak to the whole <laughs> ability of Miyazaki films to portray age, not only are they really good at showing child acting, like you were saying, not only that, it shows a range of ages. Like you can tell the mm. difference between Ponyo as a three to four year old and a 10 year old versus a seven year old because it's in the mannerisms. Totoro's an even better illustration. Exactly, because mm -hmm. it's two sisters. May and her older sister. Absolutely. And forgive me, I don't remember the older sister's name. Saisuke, maybe? Saisuke? Sosuke? Sure. That sounds like a boy's name, but whatever. <laughs> But the older sister is having to bear more burden. Like, she's having to take the role of the absent mother that's there, right? And May is the one who is bearing more of the emotional burden of having their mother gone and throwing temper tantrums and stuff. And just in the way that typifies Miyazaki most as far as his portrayal of children, mm -hmm. they're exploring the house for the first time and they go out into the backyard and they see the giant tree because you see a two-shot of their faces and they're sort of looking up. And then you cut to a reverse angle of just, it's not animated, it's just a painting, right, of the tree. You tilt up slowly to the very top, and then you can see the really, really tall, and you get to the top and you can see blue sky. And then you cut back to their faces, and their faces are in awe. They're going, whoa, basically. And then the little girl sneezes, you know, because she's got <laughs> an eye full of sun. Like, uh, it, that tiny <laughs> moment there showed you the human bit in something that was just lines and paint. There's a theory in my family that all children are born completely drunk. And that as time goes on, they slowly regain their motor skills and sobriety as, like, they age. And the funny thing is, is you can really see that in Miyazaki's sure. movies. Like, a three-year-old falls asleep in her bowl of ramen, right. <laughs> that sort right. of thing. And as the, the kid gets older and older, they're able to kind of master the world around them a little better. Maybe mm. not necessarily emotionally, but physically. I actually saw an interview with Miyazaki where he was complimented on his ability to portray children. He said that he gets this by watching the children of his friends pays attention to their behavior and goes, okay, yeah, I'm going to put that in my movie. Hmm. That's what I think gives it this real authenticity. Rosalind, what is your high point for Miyazaki? My high point is kind of, the caveat is that it's a bit obvious and cheap, for which I apologize in advance. No but need. He writes female characters with a lot of integrity. Hmm. And the trope is that you always say, well, write a strong... Well, I don't want to necessarily read about a strong woman. I want to read about a complex character, mm -hmm. regardless of if the character is a... Uh, cat bus or a hunting god that you have to cut the head off of or a 10-year-old girl. I haven't in my personal experience seen a level of justice done to female characters or characters in general that he exhibits, and I think it's really respectable. Hmm. Well, you look at a lot of his movies, they probably have more female protagonists than any other filmmaker that I've seen. Ponyo had almost exclusively female characters in it. That's true. All the mm -hmm. women that lived in the nursing home. I think the... Sorcerer in the Sea is the only male character and the little boy that I can actually think of. And I call the, the Sorcerer in the Sea my, uh, he's the mermaid answer to Iggy Pop. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> Doesn't he look like it? Oh my God. Yeah. Mike, what's your high point for Miyazaki? Oh, this is so hard. 
because I have the exact opposite problem that I had with the low point. There are so many things that I could expound on. If I'm going to name just a movie, I think the movie that was my favorite the first time I watched it and rewatching it for this panel only reaffirmed that is Nausicaa of the Valley of the Wind. Hmm. Really? That is so interesting. Uh, yeah, that's surprising. Really? <laughs> it's got this awesome, I wouldn't say melancholy, but certainly there's a bittersweet quality to it that I'm not used to seeing in these movies. It's a post-apocalyptic movie, which I love. I love the idea of sort of a sadness about the past and having a character in this world that's actually optimistic and kind. You look at a lot of movies nowadays and people have to have heroes that are either brooding or depressing or snarky. And you have a character here who's just a good person. And mm. it touches on that part of my brain that a really well-told Superman story does. I just want to watch a good guy. Mm-hmm. And Nausicaa is certainly that. Another one of his movies that I absolutely love to death and almost rivals Nausicaa for that is Porco Rosso, which has got air pirates and crazy adventure and a pig flying ace and has this kind of timeless quality that you know it's after World War One and before World War Two, but the technology is kind of crazy. So there's sort of this anachronistic awesomeness of yeah, kind yeah. of pulp adventure yeah, quality yeah. to it. It's just fucking fun. But for my high point, I'm really going to say that it's Miyazaki's collaboration with Joe Hisaishi, composer for all of his movies, who does all the scores, is no less versatile and talented and just wonderfully organic as anything that Miyazaki creates himself. And I don't think, to be fair going into this, that I have the vocabulary or the knowledge of music to properly do this topic justice. Mm. But that isn't going to stop me. (laughs) (laughs) Like we look at things like Nausicaa, then we look at Totoro, we look at Kiki, we look at Spirited Away, and these are all very different movies, very different tones, very different intended audiences. And Joe Hisaishi has to write a score for all of them that is incredibly different each time, that suits that movie, that holds up the vision and the tone and the flavor that Miyazaki has created. There are some really talented composers out there who have a tendency to repeat themselves over and over again. It doesn't Mm -hmm. matter what the movie is. They're still really good. Like Leonard Rosenman is probably the best example I have of this. You guys probably don't know Leonard Rosenman, but you've heard his soundtracks. He did the soundtrack for Ralph Bakshi's Lord of the Rings, Mm. for RoboCop 2, (laughs) and for Star Trek IV The Voyage Home. (laughs) And if you've seen all three of those movies, you know that the soundtrack for all three of them is exactly the fucking same. Mm. Mm. Seriously, go on YouTube right now. Type in those soundtracks and Leonard Rosenman, the main theme for all three of those movies, RoboCop 2, Star Trek IV, Lord of the Rings by Bakshi. It's the same song. It's a good song. It's a great score, but it's the exact same theme that pops up in all of those. Joe Hisaishi doesn't do that. He's really versatile. And I think the fact that we don't regularly put him in the same echelon of great film composers like John Williams and Jerry Goldsmith and Michael Giacchino is because of that same cultural separation that we have. Mm. This man is a great composer. He's a versatile composer. And one thing that he doesn't do Because a lot of film scores have a tendency to hit all the big notes. It's like John Philip Sousa just going to fucking assault you with music. Right. (laughs) But there's something subtle that his music is a supporting cast member. It's not the star. And there are good movies that have scores that lift up the entire movie. Alan Silvestri's score to the Back to the Future is a great example of a big, epic soundtrack to a movie that actually has a very personal scale to it. It's a very intimate story. But for a movie that has those kind of small scale consequences and is largely a light comedy, 
the soundtrack is huge. It says, dun, 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 dun. <laughs> and everything feels big, and it brings it up to a scale. That's a great soundtrack, and not to degrade it, but Joe Hisaishi does the opposite. Mm. He lets the images speak for itself. So when you see the opening credit sequence to Nausicaa of the Valley of the Wind, Joe Hisaishi is a big part of the reason that's my favorite movie. Mm. It's this sad, quiet, deliberate score. There's something haunting and mature about the work that he does. So Joe Hisaishi, he is my high point for Miyazaki films. Because it was the entree for me into the world of Miyazaki, I'm going to have to say Princess Mononoke. It's an experience that you and I shared, Lauren. Mm -hmm. I had been somewhat interested in anime before, and it was just because mainstream geekdom was just starting to sort of embrace it in the mid-90s, you know, when it was really starting to come over. I really loved Mamoru Ishii's Ghost in the Shell. I thought that is still one of my favorite movies of all time. But it wasn't until I saw Mononoke in college that I associated it with the man, with the filmmaker. It was at once dark and violent and at the same time suffused with like a kind of wonder and marvel that you would have seen in his earlier works, like a Totoro. Although, as I've said before, it was kind of the movie that the only Miyazaki movie you'd see a severed head in. It had the tension between outright violence between the animals and humans, but it amplified the stakes of the narrative instead of just became a spectacle in and of itself. As you follow Ashitaga through the world, you fall in love with the animals, the forests, and the spirits. You also develop a true hatred for the humans as you're looking at it through his perspective until we visit Irontown and develop pathos. And you know then that empathy turns to revulsion again. The wolf mother Maro's blind rage becomes unpalatable, right? Talking about biting people's faces off. And Jigo, the monk slash mercenary, his single-minded task to kill the forest spirit for monetary gain. Emotionally, you vacillate back and forth between each side. In the end, you're yearning to get back to an earlier time where peace could be kept between the two, but you know it could never be. In many ways, this was mirrored the tension that was growing in myself at the time. The growing nostalgia for a childhood that's fading away, pushing against the lure of adulthood for all of its possibilities. It's beautiful and cruel, heartwarming and enraging all at the same time. In preparing for the show, I was really delighted to revisit what I hadn't seen after a decade or so. And I think it's the highest achievement of art and its very purpose to evoke emotions in us. And the fact that Miyazaki can do this so skillfully and can engage us on this level, can speak to us, this edifice of understanding that we have as small children but retain as adults, this, to me, is Miyazaki's true genius. And with that, it's been a great panel, guys. Lauren Montgomery, thank you so much for joining us. We appreciate it so much. Oh, thank you. Rosalind Townsend, thanks once again for joining our panel. Thank you, sir. And Mike hey. Gillis. <laughs> we'll see you again next time on Radio vs. the Martians. Radio vs. the Martians is produced by Mike Gillis and Casey Doran. Our editor was Mike Gillis. Our theme music was written and performed by Todd Maxfield Matsumoto. Find us online at RadioVersusTheMartians.com and send us your feedback at info at RadioVersusTheMartians.com. the two of you like to do now? Ponyo wants ham! All she thinks about is ham, Mom.